This is the third study on Joshua, and we still have not reached chapter one. <laughs> this is probably a good reminder that God didn't just throw Joshua into the position of responsibility in leading his people without preparation. In God's mercy, he was fulfilling his promise to Abraham that his covenant people would inherit the promised land. And both Matthew, Moses and Joshua were instrumental in accomplishing this in God's strength. In his wisdom, we see the work of preparation for this major work, this important work, both in the preparation of Moses and Joshua's life. And if I just read the verse from Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham, he said in Joshua, in Genesis 12, verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So the land isn't going to be given to the Israelites by Moses or by Joshua. They may be the instruments that God is fulfilling that promise many years before to Abraham that the land would be given to his people. So we see this wonderful preparation of these two men. We know Moses was well prepared. He couldn't have been better prepared in a sense. Trained up to be a ruler in Pharaoh's palace. So he had all the secular training to rule, and then he had the spiritual training in the wilderness for 40 years. And our brother Daniel reminded us last time of how Joshua had shared in many of the crises Moses faced, and learned how Moses humbly looked to God in dependency. But the day was coming when Moses would no longer be God's shepherd for his people, the Israelites, and his huge company of mainly unbelieving Israelites would be very vulnerable. But God, in his wisdom, had already begun to prepare the one who would succeed Moses. Matthew Henry writes, God, in answer to Moses' prayer, appoints him a successor, even Joshua, who had long since signalled himself by his courage in fighting Amalek, his humility in ministering to Moses, and his faith and sincerity in witnessing against the report of the evil spies. This is the man whom God pictures upon to succeed Moses, a man in whom is the spirit, the spirit of grace. He is a good man, fearing God and hating covetousness and acting from principle. And the spirit of government, he is fit to do the work and discharge the trusts of this place, a spirit of conduct and courage. So just briefly thinking about some of those things we saw last time, Joshua has learned during this time that although God is all-sufficient, he uses people. He had learned on Mount Sinai that God governs his people through his revealed word. Also on Mount Sinai, Joshua had had an amazing encounter with the glory of God, which must have been such a strength to him in the years ahead. I often think when God's going to mightily challenge and use his servants, so often he gives them a signal experience. You think of the Apostle Paul and all the trials he went through, but that Damascus Road experience would never fade from his mind. Walking with Moses, Joshua had learned that God will hear and answer prayer. Joshua had learned the sad truth about the deceitful heart of the people in the incident of the golden calf. And Joshua must have learned also the great lesson of the need for the leader to be humble and obedient before God. I do wonder how Joshua felt 
about the fact that Moses, who he must have esteemed greatly, now was not allowed to enter the promised land. What a powerful lesson. So we come to Joshua's inauguration. And once again, we see God as a God of order. So if you turn to Numbers 27, and we'll read from verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abram, and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people, as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Now listen to Moses. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Isn't that a wonderful reflection of Moses' heart? Whatever politics was taking place, the burden for the care and welfare of the flock rose above it all. May that be a challenge to us all. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest, before all the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. And if you turn to Deuteronomy 31, if you're following. Deuteronomy 31. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today, so we're quite young. <laughs> I, am, I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord, your God himself, crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land, when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and have a good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage. For the Lord must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. And then from 
Deuteronomy 34, just a couple of verses there. Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid on him, had laid his hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. So in today's account, we've arrived at the time of Moses' departure. It was very important that both for Joshua and the people, they would understand that God was setting apart Joshua as their leader and therefore would go with him. But that ultimately, God was to be their guide through the ministry of Eliezer, the high priest. So we have the inauguration, and we can note several matters here. First, this provision was in answer to Moses' prayer for a shepherd to care for God's people. There was no bitterness in Moses. Many in his position have, might have felt bitter that he was not going into the promised land after all these years of service, and that bitterness could easily have eaten him up. Or he could have promoted his family. And here we see him meekly and willingly recognising God's provision for his people. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them, go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. I mean, Moses must have really felt that burden, this huge congregation of people, who in a sense have been trouble from day one for Moses. But he needed, knew they needed, a shepherd. So the provision was in answer to Moses' prayer. Secondly, the inauguration was to be public. God commanded this so that there was to be no reason for doubt in the people's mind that Joshua was to be Moses' successor and that Moses was fully endorsing him. It was also important that in the public eye, Eliezer, the high priest, acknowledges that Joshua was God's choice to lead his people. Eliezer's support would be of great significance to Joshua and to the people in the days ahead. So this inauguration was in answer to prayer. It was to be public. The inauguration also transferred some power. And this is obviously a supernatural work of God's spirit. The transfer of power was not abrupt, but it would allow a short period of Moses and Joshua exercising real joint leadership. It would help the people get used to his leadership, bearing in mind that a whole generation had only ever known one leader, Moses. As far as they were concerned, however much they grumbled, it was Moses who had brought them out of bondage. It was Moses who had fed them in the wilderness. It was Moses that brought the quails. It was Moses that made the way through the Red Sea. So, although they gave him a rough time, we know even in Jesus' day, these Jews still look back to Moses. He fed them in the wilderness. Now Jesus was saying he was the bread of life. Well, here we are. You can understand that probably in their hearts the people esteemed Moses. He was the only leader they knew. And no one likes change. None of us. But in this inauguration, God so ordered it that for a period 
there would be a real joint leadership and the people would see that God's spirit also rested on Joshua and it would get them used to the fact that there would be a new leader that they would need to honour. So the inauguration was in answer to Moses' prayer. It was to be public. The inauguration transferred some power. And the inauguration focused on the key issue. As we've reminded ourselves, this was happening because God was answering his covenant promise to Abraham. And it was important that the congregation saw Moses laying his hands on Joshua as his successor in front of Eliezer the priest. Matthew Henry says, He shall stand before Eliezer, by him to consult the oracle, ready to receive and observe all the instructions that should be given by it. This was a direction to Joshua. Though he was full of the Spirit and had all this honour put upon him, yet he must do nothing without asking counsel of God, not leaning to his own understanding. It was also of great encouragement to him. To govern Israel, to conquer Canaan, were two hard tasks. But God assures him that in both, he should be under a divine conduct. In every difficult case, God would advise him that which should be for the best. Moses had recourse to the oracle of God himself. But Joshua and the succeeding judges must use the ministry of the high priests and consult the judgment of Urim, which, the Jews say, might not be inquired of by the king or the head of the Sanhedrin or by the agent or representative of the people for them and in their name. Thus the government of Israel was now purely divine, for both the designation and direction of their princes were entirely so. At the word of the priests, according to the judgment of Urim, Joshua and all the people must go out and come in, and no doubt God, who thus guided, would preserve both their going out and their coming in. Those are safe, and may be easy, that follow God, and in all ways acknowledge him. This inauguration then demonstrated clearly that God was still caring for them, and would go with them. So the inauguration was an answer to Moses' prayer, the inauguration was to be public, the inauguration transferred some power, and the inauguration focused on the key issue, that the people were going to be led by God and needed to be obedient to God. And the inauguration came with a clear commission. Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. What would you think if you were told that with a couple of million people to bleed? You will cause them to inherit it. What an awesome commission. Sometimes when we're called by the Lord to undertake a new task or whatever, it can often seem awesome, can't it? Imagine Joshua in this situation. First, he is to go with this people, God's people. But as we know in many ways ungodly and rebellious by nature. What a task. To the land. Oh yes, the congregation had all heard the tales handed down about the giants in the land. Joshua had already acquitted himself in the battle, but would the people follow him? You shall cause them to inherit it. 
Well, what a commission. But it was to be at the word of the priest, according to the judgment of the Urim, that God would direct their coming in and their going out. Thus Joshua would need to look to God to preserve their going out and their coming in. Have we ever felt such inadequacy and the greatness of a charge by God as Joshua must have felt? And then, finally, the inauguration came with a promise. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. Do not fear, nor be dismayed. A great commission, but now a great promise. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear, nor be dismayed. As Moses spoke these words to Joshua, Moses must have had a great sense of assurance in his heart, as he had proved time and time again God's faithfulness. For Joshua to hear this great prophet of God speak these powerful words to him would have stirred up in him a great sense of the very presence of God. And he may well have remembered these moments many times in the years ahead. Now in a sense these words are very familiar to, you, to us, aren't they? I'm sure we all, at times of challenge and darkness, maybe in the middle of the night, have quoted to ourselves the words of Isaiah 41. You are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you aside. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And what a blessing when we hear the Holy Spirit applying those words to our own hearts in a very personal way. You are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you away. How often we feel, I deserve to be cast away. He's chosen us to be his servant. So what lessons can we take away from these two short passages? First, God is a God of order. The sovereignty of God is no excuse for lack of preparation in any aspect of God's service. Many of us have been or are involved in aspects of service for Christ our Master, and we all know the need for prayerful preparation. But our preparation always needs to be clothed with the aid of the Holy Spirit, with wisdom and grace that God gives to us and guided by his revealed world, will. What we see clearly in these arrangements is that God is central and not man. So we see in these passages that God is a God of order. We also see the sufficiency of the Lord in these matters. The transfer of the leadership of God's people to Joshua was successful because the Lord had graciously and wisely paved the way. We saw that in the way Joshua had already been called to the work alongside Moses for some time and in many situations. He had seen God at work and must have recognised Moses' humility and dependence on God. The people generally held Moses in high esteem and now for Moses to endorse Joshua would have meant a great deal. We can also 
trust in the sufficiency of our Lord as he prepares, leads, and equips. Three, the importance of leaders and indeed disciples seeking and trusting the Lord. I've got this quote from somewhere, I can't remember where I got the quote from now. No one is adequate for the leadership of God's people, but the Lord is more than adequate for his chosen leaders. No one is adequate for the leadership of God's people, but the Lord is more than adequate for his chosen leaders. In the same way we can say, no one is adequate for any act of service to Christ, but Christ is more than adequate for his servants. Finally, our life speaks far more than our words. This is a great challenge. This is a challenge to us in every branch of our lives, but for particularly for us as parents or grandparents. We see that a great deal of what Joshua had learnt about leadership was not because Moses sat him down and went through a textbook on leadership. It was because Moses modelled godly, spiritual, wise, humble, dependent leadership. And Joshua learnt more from that than he could ever learn from being sat down and given some lectures on leadership. Do those we share our lives with know that God comes first in our lives? That we enjoy him above all else? That obedience to him is important to us? That we are consistent in what we say? For example, we don't have bitter words, words for our wife on a Sunday morning and then an hour later sing with the same lips and same tongue hymns of praise to God? Do our children, our grandchildren, learn the great principles of humble, God-centred discipleship from what they see in us? Do they learn the great principles of humble, God-centred discipleship from what they see in us? And I'm sure we all have to repent on some of these matters. Are those around us clear who are we are living for? Joshua had no doubt about who Moses was living for. It would have meant little for Moses to tell Joshua to be strong and of a good courage if Moses had not shown these great spiritual attributes himself. So our life speaks more than words. In conclusion, God who calls also can be trusted to prepare and equip. But as we look at Joshua 1 next time, we're reminded that this promise is also dependent on us continuing to walk in dependence on God.